Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, we get into the second half of our holiday episode. Nathan tells us a bit about the Wally and China's sack Santa. Then I'll take you back to Christmas Eve 1931, when Sharon Elliott, a seven-day-old baby, was found in the middle of the Arizona desert. As always, expect those adult words, but other than that, just get cozy and let's get ready for another Human Exception. Craig's volume down and then it reset itself. <laughs> Craig's just fucking the fuck out of me. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, why? Blub 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 blub. Ready for this? Alright, uh Nathan, why don't you start us off? Or I guess uh welcome back to the human exception. <laughs> Probably start with that. <laughs> <laughs> I just no. work here, man. No, we're not gonna. We're not. No. <laughs> um. Oh, real quick, can we can we just do a test to see if Jake says something? If you guys hear him, okay. Yeah, can you guys hear me? I can hear Jake. Yeah, yep. you can talk. Sorry, babe. Silent Jake. <laughs> Silent Jake. Jake's just gonna have to quiet for two hours. <laughs> Holy. Jesus. <laughs> wow. Wow. <sighs> <sighs> Merry Christmas, people. <laughs> but not Jake. But not Jake. <laughs> Jake, who has to be quiet this whole time. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Nathan, tell us about the things you're going to tell us about. Yes. Okay. Sorry, I had to get a stretch out. <laughs> no. How unprofessional. How dare you be comfortable and care for your body? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, all right, well, I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> the extreme level of Karen that I brought to that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're so Karen. <laughs> I can be if I need to be. <laughs> So that's that's where I turn uh, turn the mute on and just like walk away from the computer. Bitch, who do you think you are? Come back, come back three minutes later, still listening to the rant. Oh, okay, I guess I'll come back another three minutes. Welcome to Hex Fight Club. Um, that's yeah. apparently what uh, Monica used to do to Jen on <laughs> their <laughs> Skype chat. And we'll just oh, go on our rant, and then Monica would just like. Get herself and walk away for like twenty minutes. <laughs> oh my yeah. god! Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's good times. All right, we're gonna talk about uh, some winter traditions in, uh, well, some East Indian winter traditions, and then I got a just some random thing that popped up. Uh that I thought was kind of weird and hilarious that I will tell you guys about afterwards. 
All right. <laughs> uh, so, <clears throat> even though uh, it is not technically within the winter season, um, it usually happens around the end of fall. Uh, so, around like the last week of October, uh, we are going to be talking about uh, Diwali. Um, so Diwali is a East Indian celebration that, uh, it's their version, like it's their festival of lights. Uh, the basic reasoning around it and, um, the whole reason they, uh, they celebrate is basically a, uh, a celebration of the light winning over the darkness um, when it comes to sort of more religiously focused versions of it. Uh, except it is a huge five-day festival that goes on uh, in India. And generally, um, you know, it starts on it starts on your first day, goes for five days. The third day is when everybody is out in the streets and they're celebrating and they're having a good time. And then the last day is generally when people reserve that time for family uh, and they just kind of hang out with their, their family and, and do whatever they decide to do on their, you know, on their week long holiday. Um, so it is uh, obviously, like I mentioned, it's the holiday of light uh, festival of lights. Uh, it is one of the major festivals um, in India, uh, celebri- celebrated by Hindus. Uh, forgive me, I'm probably saying this wrong. Jains, uh, Sikhs, and Buddhists. Um, so again, uh, the la- it lasts five days and is celebrated during the uh, Hindu Luni solar month, uh, Kartika, which is usually uh, mid-October to mid-November. Um, a lot of the times we generally see uh, the celebrations happening um, closer to the end of October. Sometimes the festival itself uh, symbolizes the spiritual victory over uh, of light over darkness or good over evil knowledge over ignorance. Um, it's widely associated with the uh, the god Lakshmi, um, the goddess of uh, prosperity. <clears throat> and, uh, sorry, um, other, uh, other regions connected to, depending on their, um, their particular religion, um, connected to uh, Sita or Rama, Vishnu, uh, Krishna, Yama, Yami, uh, and so forth. Um, so it de- really, uh, depending on the province that you're in, uh, and your, um, your, I guess, whatever religion that you are a part of or your social, uh, social structure kind of determines how you celebrate Diwali. And that is actually kind of um that's something that sort of permeate um permeates through all of India. A lot of their 
um, a lot of their celebrations and their festivals and stuff are very much around the same time. Um, a couple of them are sort of scattered about, but never, like, if they overlap, they're never more than, like, a month away from each other. Um, and then they're the differences kind of come down to religious differences is if you're, if you're Hindu or, or you're sick or, uh, or otherwise. So a lot of the, the tradition with, uh, Diwali almost, almost has like a little bit of a Christmas vibe to it. Uh, it's a time where, uh, people get together, you know, exchange gifts. Uh, they, you know, bring out their new clothes. They start, uh, you know, having, having big meals. Uh, bringing all people, bringing everyone together. They're going out of their way to feed the poor, setting off a ton of fireworks. Um, one of the uh, biggest um, times of like smoke pollution uh, in the year actually happens during this time. Um, and especially in like Delhi, where people are all over the streets and they're everywhere setting off firecrackers like all the time so you like step out of your house and there's just smoke everywhere and just crackling of fireworks all of the time um you can go online and check out some of the uh some of the festivities uh on basically their party day and it is insane so there's like there's there's not a whole um a whole lot more like it it is basically a 5 day stretch where the start of it is um feverish cleaning for everyone that's going to be coming up uh coming and visiting uh everyone <laughs> cleans and cleans and cleans and cleans and then you start getting ready and then you party and then you hang out with your family and then you tell everybody to leave until the next the next <laughs> holiday there are, interestingly enough, uh, although it's not technically a Buddhist festival, uh, some Buddhists do celebrate it as a commemoration of the day of when one of the emperors converted to Buddhism in the 3rd century. Uh, that's the Emperor Ashoka. Um, I thought that was an interesting little tidbit. Um, a lot of Especially considering, like, um, religion's, like, very, regardless of where it is, it's very picky about, you know, what it celebrates. And um, what I find particularly interesting is that, especially in India, a lot of their festivals just sort of overlap. And they all celebrate the same thing. Everyone's celebrating for very similar reasons across the country. Um, but it might be just a little bit different based on uh, based on your region, based on your religion. It's kind of neat. Now, are these like holidays like all compatible and stuff? Um, as far as I understand, they're pretty compatible. Um, I talking to a couple, uh, a couple of my friends, their parents are from different provinces so they celebrated differently um and then when they married and they were born they just 
ended up celebrating based on how their province celebrated. And they're like, yeah, you know, it's no big deal. We're still celebrating the same festival. And this is kind of, this is just sort of how we do it. Um, That's kind of like joining different Christmas traditions between different families. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's neat. Mm-hmm. It's like, like it, with the diversity of it and like mixing and matching from different regions and different religions, it sounds like every family would almost have their own traditions. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seemed like that. Like, the idea of going out and like the the part about going out and helping the poor, it sounds like that's not necessarily a thing that happens in every single region. It's just part of a thing that happens in some regions. Mm-hmm. Um, because in some places, those ideas of going out and like giving gifts and helping people out is like, okay, well, like, why aren't we focusing on our own people first? Uh, it just, that mentality of like maybe that community mentality in that certain area or in the, even in that neighborhood just isn't there. So when they see other people doing it and being like, you're celebrating a little bit differently, that's weird. Why are you giving your own stuff to other people? Um, (laughs) And, you know, but like it be, it kind of slowly became a, became a thing. Yeah. It's kind of rooted in the like India's class system and stuff too. I imagine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, like, what, like, you said they give gifts to each other. Like, what kind of gifts are they giving? Like, I'm assuming it's not like Christmas, it's like traditional gifts that you'd give. I couldn't find anything on like traditional gifts. I mean, by my understanding, it could be, could be anything. Yeah, it doesn't really, they don't really kind of specify the kind of gifts. Um, however, it seems like gambling is really, uh, really popular during the time because it's supposed to be good luck. Um, Gambling is good luck. Well, I love that. It's supposed to lose everything. (laughs) Yeah. It's supposed to ensure playing card games um, is a way of ensuring good luck in the coming year. I wonder if it's like similar to the, the concept of like using the dreidel for Hanukkah. Cause like you gamble a little bit with that, don't you? I don't know. I, uh, I I don't remember. I just remember playing dreidel and getting stuff whenever we <laughs> played with the dreidel. My family is not Jewish. Um, my grandparents dabbled in it for a while, but like I'm not sure if it's like uh like a gambling game. No, it is. It definitely is. Yeah, it's a gambling game too. Look at that. All right. <laughs> Look at me learning shit. That probably <laughs> that probably makes more sense as to like why they have the etchings on the side of it mm-hmm. in the dreidel, and when they fall, and whatever is up top, like yeah, they're facing up. Okay, there's get nothing. You get everything in the pot. You get half the pot, or you add one of your pieces to the pot. Oh, okay. And then usually you play. We always played with chocolate coins. I don't know why we had played. Jewish games as kids, but we did. Um, or you do like pennies or like candies or something. So I don't know if it's supposed to be like. I mean, I would gamble for for gummy candies and chocolate any day. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry to interrupt and like make that totally <laughs> <laughs> non- it's vaguely related. Yeah, it's fine. 
I guess the last uh, the last little bit that I wanted to touch on was that the that Diwali uh, seems to be a particularly important festival in Jainism. Um, so for the Jain community, the uh, obviously commemorates the enlightenment and liberation of Mahavira, uh, their most recent of the Jain Tirthankara, which I believe is a one of their holy people. Um, and also represents the cycle of life and death. So it is, I guess, somewhat a festival of, like a celebration of life and light. Um, so they light lamps um, in light of the Mahavira's holy knowledge. So that's neat. So, sorry, did you say Jainism is what it's called? Yes. I've never heard of this religion before. I've it heard was, of it, but like vaguely remember. Yeah, it, it was pretty new to me when I was looking into this. And that's all I really got on Diwali. All little, right. little cliff notes. <laughs> but how do you the, not love a festival called the Festival of Lights? I mean, seriously. Yeah. Yeah, right? that's, that's, that's magical and lovely and amazing. Yeah, like multiple days of hanging out with your friends and family, drinking and eating, and apparently gambling. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, and like candles and shit, I'm into it. Yep. And like, really, it'd be really hard to encompass every detail, but obviously, like I said, it's so different in every region and in every family. So yeah, yeah like I can't even, uh, I can't even imagine like how many different versions there are. But how cool, I mean, obviously I don't want to like speak out of turn or anything, but like how cool would it be to be invited to someone's own like little family Diwali, you know, festival and realize how yeah. special mm -hmm. that is. It, yeah, it would be really interesting. I get excited about going to other people's houses for like Christmas things, and I already know <laughs> what fucking Christmas is. <laughs> like, I, I'm like, no, but what do you guys eat and when though? <laughs> what are you wearing? <laughs> and I'm just in a creepy way. <laughs> we light uh, the tree now, or do we wait? What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> wait, do people not like leave their trees lit all the time? Uh, I leave mine all, all the time. Hallie, do you leave yours hey, lit all the time? Do you have a tree? I, I don't put one up because cats. Um, well, but, that's uh, yeah. <laughs> learned the hard way. Uh, but like, no, growing uh, up. yeah, growing up, actually, um, I had one friend uh, who uh, it was cool. They would wait until after everyone ate, and then they would turn the tree on for the first time. Oh, for, for wow! So like on like yeah. Christmas the Eve? entire month, yeah. it's like wow. Well, I, they didn't That's put it up until that morning. So oh, okay. Mm -hmm. But then you don't That's get to enjoy you don't your get tree time. time. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I, I don't know. I want more tree time personally. <laughs> uh, one of my just to share real quick. One of my favorite Christmas traditions that my family started um, was that we got Christmas pajamas. The night before, because in our family, you can open one gift Christmas Eve. <laughs> um, but it was always pajamas. So it wasn't really like opening a gift. It was like, get your Christmas pajamas. But mom like wrapped them like it was a thing. Mom, if you're listening, I'm not hating on the jamas. I miss them. But the reason why it started with our family was because my mom was looking at photos of us as little girls and realized that um, we were just wearing my dad's giant ratty t-shirts for for mm -hmm. nightgown and that it did not make cute pictures so like she didn't <laughs> want to share i mean it did but like she didn't want to share because like we're wearing like holy 
old t-shirts and like underwear and like like maybe we <laughs> should have something cuter. Oh my so god. <laughs> um so yeah, and then my family then we started getting pajamas. Uh or my gra- my grandmother also would hand make us pajamas like we used to call them Wendy gowns because Wendy from Peter Pan used to have this <laughs> oh. blue nightdress. Yeah. And I had a blue nightdress too, and so I called it my Wendy gown. Um, and so Holy we God. had some of those. I don't know if we still have any of them. I hope my mom kept them and didn't put them in Goodwill and they're underneath the house and I can go <laughs> st- steal them from her. Not that they'll fit me, but like, uh, I feel like those are heirloomy in a way, <laughs> you know, it's cute. You know what I'm saying? Wow. Love it. Anyway. Yeah. Our, our family's German. Um, so we always celebrated Christmas mm. and Christmas Eve. So yeah, we do all the Christmas stuff on Christmas Eve. We do the dinner, we do the gifts, and then Christmas we just do whatever the fuck we want. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, weird! See, yeah. my family's German, so, so my mom kind of took over our Christmas, like her family stuff, as far as I know. Um, so but like I think my grandmother did the same thing. Mm. <laughs> my great grandmother, because my grandmother is German Italian. So okay. I think we have like more of a mixture or maybe like just the women in our family just kind of take over on those things because they're running it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So. Amazing. But yeah, we have, we get like all the good Christmas goodie, like German Christmas tradition, like all the food. Fucking mm. sewing to German Christmas food. Oh my God. We ordered, um, so growing up, my grandmother always would get um, a big chest of Leibkuchen from Germany. Which is oh. like the German co- cookies and stuff, which are like mm-hmm. a lot of gingerbreads and kind of like fruitcake kind of stuff. Like a little stuff that's not very sweet, which is nice. Um, so yeah, we always got it growing up. And so this year, Tyler and I decided that we were going to, my Tyler, my brother, uh, decided that I we were going to order um, a chest for ourselves and our dad back home. So ours doesn't show that yet because of the crazy flooding in BC. Yeah. <laughs> Dad's at his now. Do you guys eat stolen for Christmas? Uh, it gets stolen. What is it? It's like a, it's like a cakey thing with white. It's always covered in white fucking powdered sugar. My mom's super into them. I don't really know if it's like what part of Germany it's from. If that makes like a recipe, it's like a bread. It's like a, yeah. a bread. Um, Christmas. I don't shower. think so. Like I don't remember anything particularly like that. But one thing is that my grandmother was a terrible cook. So oh. when we, she like originally, so when she they come over to Canada. <laughs> She didn't know how to cook, really, uh, and she ended up becoming a homemaker. And uh, like okay. one of the women that she was homemaking for was like, "Okay, you fucking need to learn how to cook." And she taught her how to cook. So uh, there's a lot of like traditional German things that she didn't cook just because she never learned how. Oh, um, okay. And like she grew up during like World War II as well, so things were very sparse as well. Yeah. As, so yeah, no, that I'm not familiar with that. It just looks kind of like yeah, fruitcake to me. It looks it's it's fruitcake like but it also has like marzipan in it i love marzipan. my mom and i love marzipan and then the other thing my family always gets was an italian thing are um panettone which are just like these very intricate fruit breads but they're not nasty fruit they're not like fruitcake like i enjoy them and i don't like fruits and shit in my breads um (laughs) i like fruitcake though but that could just me being a fruitcake (laughs) but with panettone like to make it, you have to, like, it takes, like, fucking four days. 
And you have to hang that shit upside down for part of that time and let it sit. And I'm like, ain't what time for that? I'm going to, it's, it's Sounds a, like so much work. It's Holy fucking shit. process. But honestly, it's some of the best shit I've ever eaten. They make ones that are just chocolate. There are ones that are oh. just like citrus candy there. And it's all like candied citrus on the inside. And I <sighs> fucking love it. But yeah, um, <laughs> Josh Weissman did did a thing and i was like oh i should learn how to do this because like oh. we never made this growing up and i watched his video and i was like uh no he was like i wouldn't <laughs> do this except for i have like this is my whole thing and i was like yeah i don't i wonder why that shit's ridiculous what kind of gram what kind of nona has that time no nona has that time <laughs> my mom doesn't have that fucking time <laughs> Uh, oh man! So anyway, <laughs> any other Christmas traditions anyone wants to share? Not that I've derailed <laughs> us again. We're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> my whole my whole shtick is just derailing everybody now. No, it's good. It's good. Like it's like you know we do. Even though we all come from very European cultures and stuff, we do have have different celebrations as well, which I think is yeah. cool. Yeah. I like I like hearing other people what other people do because I like sometimes I want to low key steal what you do. <laughs> I found in my notes the the meanings of each of the days, so we will end on that. Okay. Um. So the first day, uh, known as Don Terras, is dedicated to cleaning homes, purchasing small items of gold. Uh, and Lakshmi is the focus of worship on that day. The second day is Naraka Chaturdashi or Choti Diwali. That was much easier to say. Uh, it commemorates Krishna's destruction of uh, Naraka Sura. Um, prayers are offer also offered to the souls of ancestors on that day. And on the third day, uh, Lakshmi Puja Families seek blessings from Lakshmi um, to ensure their prosperity. They light dias, uh, candles, and fireworks. They visit temples. This is the main day of, of uh, Diwali. Uh, the fourth day is Govardhan Puja or Anakut, um, commemorating Krishna's defeat of Indra, the king of gods, also the first day of Kartika. And the start of the new year uh, in the Hindu calendar. Um, so some merchants will perform religious ceremonies and open new accounting books on that day. Um, and then the fifth day is Baha'i Tika, and it celebrates the bond between brothers and sisters. And that's generally when people get the family together. Really sweet. I mm. like that. Didn't you have uh, something from China as well? I did. Um, and this one's a little, this one's a little, just a random weird thing. So China obviously hasn't always um, celebrated Christmas. Uh, it's still relatively new within the last. When was Bill Clinton president? In the 90s. In the nineties, yeah, yeah. Early 90s. So, so like nineties, basically, like opening, opening up more to Western traditions, and 
becoming slightly less more, I mean, slightly more liberal in their allowance of certain things into their country. Um, which came in the uh, form of Christmas and other more Western um, holidays. So they started having um, uh, they started having mall Santas, as is tradition here in North America. However, Sometime after they introduced Mall Santa, their Santas started hauling around like saxophones. Um, <laughs> and they also started creating like these Santa displays that would play saxophones. And nobody could figure out where it was coming from. Um, oh, and like, it's just one of those things that kind of showed up. And now like every mall Santa in China basically plays a saxophone. Um, so it it is kind of one of those weird, like weird cultural things that kind of came over and the the majority of the thought is that well you know it it feels like it fits santa's persona um <laughs> just kind of like what? that i i don't know i love he, it that's great yeah <laughs> and like he seems like the kind of guy that would just like jam on the sax when he has nothing to do or when he's just like you know chilling out that's um, so good i love the thought of santa just Hammering out some careless whisper for the elves to give us. That's hundred percent where my head was at. <laughs> also went to careless whisper. Um, yes! Could it be because? Could it be because Bill Clinton played saxophone? So that is another. That is another, was, yeah. that is another theory that I was going to get to. Yeah. The sorry. Um, one of the theories was that um, because Christmas became popular in China. Um, in the early 90s and apparently the Chinese really liked Bill Clinton um, he had a an appearance on the Arsenio Hall show where he played Heartbreak Hotel on a tenor sax wearing sunglasses right, um, right, right. and that was sort of around the time when Chinese culture started opening up to the west and Chinese consumers started to buy up Western stuff. So there is a there is a theory out there that um Clinton was partially responsible for um Sex Santa. Sex Santa, yes. Oh Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys know about the um, fried chicken in Japan? No. I know that it's really popular, but I forget why. Okay, so I'm going to just I'm recalling this. Um, I don't, obviously, I haven't been repaired this for this, but um, yeah, so in Japan, uh, when the American soldiers were originally stationed over there during World War II or after, um, they, Japan never celebrated Christmas before because obviously their religions were primarily like Buddhism and Shinto, which 
don't have a Christmas or time around there that's specifically kind of similar to what we have Christmas. So the U.S. soldiers and stuff that were um, stationed there would get, you know, homesick on the holidays. And so they opened up like a KFC on one of the military bases. And KFC then kind of came over to Japan and got quite popular around this time. And the J- Japanese picked up this tradition from the Americans, knowing like, okay, well, they eat turkey back home for Christmas. And so now in Japan, everyone does fried chicken for Christmas. And they, yeah, so they're, they're, you have to order your fried chicken ahead of time for Christmas Day. Um, there's huge lineups otherwise <laughs> and it's just a whole big thing and it's amazing <laughs> i love it wow. i honestly feel like fried chicken is way better than doing turkey or ham i don't like ham anyway um yeah do it <laughs> great <laughs> my family has done this thing where like now that we've grown up um in terms of like holiday dinners my mom has like zero desire to make holiday food anymore. She doesn't enjoy it anyway. So we do things like lasagna. Although Christmas, we usually do crab and steak. Um, That's because we got a good deal on crab living in Alaska. But like mm-hmm. one year for Thanksgiving, my sister and I got together and we had dim sum. Um, and I feel like that that should be the way everybody does everything. <laughs> Just eat, eat what you fucking like. I think, I think we need to go to, uh, Dollywall sweets again this year. <laughs> yeah, so what? like um uh I do usually turkey and stuff just because it's the only time I make turkey. But last year, um yeah, we did our our like Christmas dinner on Christmas Eve and uh Tyler crashed over here and then Christmas Day we sat around and played Minecraft all day. Beautiful. And then we're like, well fuck, we're hungry. <laughs> what do we want to eat? And so we just walked down the street because where we live is a huge East Indian and Asian neighborhoods. So all the restaurants were open because <laughs> it was all Chinese Indian places. So we just, yeah, went to Dollywell Sweets, which is a place that's a couple blocks from ours, and <laughs> had ourselves some butter chicken and curry, and it was delicious. Mm-hmm. I'm for amazing. this. <laughs> yeah, and the whole the whole family was there. They they came out and they talked to us for a bit. Yeah, and they, they brought out the baby. Yeah. Yeah, like meet the baby, and we're like, okay. And I'm like, we oh, love God, babies. Well, yeah. I love babies. It was really good. I will spill the baby. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was it was it was fun. It was and it was so quiet out because everyone was home for Christmas, except for you know like the people of those those cultures and religions that <laughs> are people who just don't celebrate Christmas. Yeah, so, it's like nice. Jews getting. There's like a tradition in New York of Jews getting Chinese food on Christmas. <laughs> Because Chinese, like you were saying earlier, don't really do Christmas, and Jews obviously don't do Christmas, and so like that became like a a bridge of solidarity between the communities in New York. Nice. <laughs> That's amazing. And now we've just gone on a tour of the world about mm-hmm. Christmas celebrations, which yeah. is awesome. We'll have to do more of that next year for sure. So mm-hmm. I found a list of like Christmas weird Christmas traditions, like couple days ago and like i put it in the ideas folder because i'm like okay we gotta look at this next year oh dominic the christmas donkey which (laughs) is from italy but from italy because no italians know what the fuck anyone's talking about (laughs) so a couple years ago i found my my new favorite christmas song (laughs) and it's six white boomers 
and it's an Australian Christmas song about Santa and six white kangaroos. Oh <laughs> my gosh. It's it's amazing. I, I don't have I, I'm obviously not gonna sing it for you. I'm just gonna recommend that everyone go listen to that song and just enjoy it. <laughs> it's good. It's sketchy. Good. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's bring this down or up. I don't know. Um yeah, so for Christmas I decided to do the Hatbox baby, which I'm really excited about. Because this ended up being way bigger than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> As most things that I do end up being. So it was Christmas Eve, 1931, when a couple was driving through the Arizona desert and encountered some car troubles. They pulled over, and as they were examining the damage, they heard a sound. 150 feet away, they found a little girl, seven days old, in a woman's hat box. How had she got there? Where were her parents? Who was she? It's a heartwarming story of a Christmas miracle. What would have happened to Sharon if the stewards hadn't found her? You've probably heard about this at some point, especially if you're an unsolved mysteries junkie like I am, which is where I heard it from it. But uh, yeah, it turns out there's a lot more to the story than the headlines. So let's get into the details of this. So it was around 8 p.m. Uh, that Ed and Julia Stewart's car broke down in the desert near Florence, Arizona. Ed worked on repairing the car as Julia's 15-year-old two co- twin cousins John and Betty Mansfield huddled in the back of the car. Julia heard whimpering, thinking that maybe it was an abandoned kid and her puppy, and she cautiously stepped off the road, finding the hat box 150 feet from the car. She calls her husband to come over and open the box, and then they find the baby girl, who would later be known as Sharon Elliott. She was wrapped in a blue blanket in the hat box, and baby Sharon was cold and hungry and was only a week old. As soon as they have the car running again, they rush Sharon to Mesa, Arizona police station, where Chief Meyer receives her and brought her to a local maternity home where a doctor looked her over and confirmed that she was healthy and she was okay. They named her Mary, a reference to the Virgin Mary. And um, this discovery soon became national news. It's a symbol of hope during the Great Depression. Lawmen from three counties tried to find the baby's mother, but they never did. In 1931, Mesa, Arizona was a sleepy square mile Mormon farm town, miles from the nearest community with a population of just 3,000. So it was a kind of place where everyone knew everybody, so it was hard to fathom that somebody in this tight-knit community would have been able to get pregnant and, like, no one find out about it and then abandon their child in the desert. Just, like, ad- abandoning your baby in the desert it just seems oh, so yeah. cool. It, I can't even imagine. It gets so cold. There are coyotes. Yeah. So many things you could have done differently in that situation so yeah the cops had no idea what to think and everything was on the table even the possibility of homicide and so they poured over the area where sharon was found but couldn't find a single shred of evidence like oh maybe you know their mother had been out there with her and her mother was killed and she's somewhere out there but there was just nothing out there where the baby was found and at one point um the team was investigating a teen mother that was living in the small mining town of miami which was 25 miles away but nothing came from it so two months after her miraculous discovery, Sharon was put up for adoption. And no one could have anticipated that she would receive hundreds of applications. On February 16, 1932, a hearing was held in Pinal County Courthouse in Florence, an attempt to narrow down the pool of prospective parents. Only two couples managed to show up for the hearing due to the severe weather. And in the end, Sharon was adopted by Faith Morrow and her husband. 
Arizona papers had followed the baby's story closely until Sharon was adopted and seemed until she just seemed to disappear off the earth after that. Years later, newspaper and National Sunday magazines reportedly asked, whatever became of the baby? Because no one knew. Um, and I got some pictures. So this is uh, one of the women at the maternity home, um, like right after Sharon was discovered. So she stayed there for the couple months while they're figuring out the adoption. Hmm. Um, and this is from a newspaper article, so just some more pictures of the baby. And I think that's Julia, Julia Stewart there with her. And then this newspaper headline, which is great. So hint, Desert Tots mother murdered. So yeah, there was a while where everyone thought that it was related wow. to murder, but there just never ever was any of it. So it wouldn't be until 56 years later that Sharon would learn that not only was she adopted, but she was the Hatbox baby. Oh my god. Could you imagine, 56 oh years goodness. later, your mother's not your mother, and you were also a famous lost child in the desert. Nope. <laughs> so I would be pissed. <laughs> yeah. Wow. She's a cute little girl, girl, though. Mm -hmm. She looks mm -hmm. like my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> As a picture of her and her mother, Faith. That jacket Aww. is so good. It's amazing. So, I want jackets. <laughs> jackets are the best. Um, so yeah, she'd grown up away from Arizona in South California with her mother, stepfather, and stepbrother. She had already lived a full life, and she had been married, had a daughter, and, and since been to divorce. But now everything she knew about herself was completely turned upside down. Quote, everybody in my family knew the story except me. My mother didn't want me to find out. It was... Such a shock after all these years. I couldn't believe that during all that time it had been kept from me. Sharon still lived in California, but her daughter and grandchildren had just moved to Mesa, Arizona, and she was thinking of retiring and moving out there to be near them. This notion is what triggered Faith, and she called Sharon and is like, you need to come over when you talk about something in person. Faith and Sharon had always been close, and Faith's health had been failing. She'd recently recovered from breast cancer, but the radiation had done a number on her, and she'd already and she'd recently fallen and broken her hip as well. So, Sharon was obviously concerned and hurried over to meet up with her mother as soon as she could. When she arrived, Faith gave her a manila envelope and inside, Sharon found dozens of newspaper clippings all about the hatbox baby. This is when her mother told her that this was actually her and that she wasn't her biological mother. Faith would go on to tell Sharon that she'd been listening to the radio on Christmas Day 1931 when she heard about the Hatbox baby. Faith and her husband were in their 20s and had been trying to conceive for some time with no success. But now the answer to their prayers was right there before them and on Christmas Day nonetheless. They left their turkey in the oven and rushed to Mesa to put their names into the already growing list of couples who wanted to adopt the foundling. Just left the turkey in the oven. Just leave your house with the oven on. Yeah. Fuck it. It was the 30s. <laughs> what's, what's safety at this time, right? What is safety um, at any time? <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, Faith was chosen, and she took on Sharon. The rest is history, or so it would seem. So, six months after Faith tells Sharon about this, she would pass, unfortunately, leaving Sharon to bear this burden alone. Quote, when she told me, I cried. She was the only mother I ever knew and the only one I ever wanted, but now that she's gone... I'd like to find out more. To be honest, it's kind of a dick move. <laughs> hey, I'm just... dying. By the way, you're adopted. Peace. 
Well, one of the big things is her her mother thought that, like, she's going to move back to Arizona. Someone was going to say something eventually. So she's, like, wanted her to find out from her. And, of course, with her being sick as well, she's like, I need to get this in now. (laughs) Or it's never coming out. Or it's coming out in a bad way. (laughs) Still a dick move. Totally. So, in 1988, a small suburban newspaper called Mesa Tribune receives a call from Sharon, who is looking for information about her history. Story lands on John Dana's desk at a 28-year-old assistant editor. A picture of this guy. And a picture of the article that he wrote. Okay, I didn't realize at first that this was an older picture, like a newer picture of him. And I was like, that man is not 28 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also don't think photography quality and resolution was that good in 1988. True, true. I was just like, wait a minute, Smith's not 28. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and there's a picture of the article. So yeah, Christmas 1931, the hatbox baby comes gift wrapped. So yeah, he's the one who receives the call from Sharon, who wants to try and find out more, like, you know, back in the day, like, you didn't have Google. You would call up the local newspaper if you wanted to find out something that happened in town. So, like any journalist, Dana wanted to solve the mystery. As he grew to know Sharon, his perspective changed, and it became a much more personal mission to help this woman find her roots. As the story spread, Sharon had the opportunity to speak with the now-retired Chief Meyer, who had been the constable to receive Sharon the night that she was found. She told Meyer that she really struggled with the fact that she was just dumped in the desert to die. What Meyer said next stuck with her for the rest of her life and gave her some comfort. Quote, there's a lot of questions about where you came from that night. Questions that may never be answered. God knows. A lot of folks had theories about what did and didn't happen. Was somebody hiding in the sagebrush and making sure that you would be found? Was that good-hearted couple who brought you in telling the whole story? Nobody knows for sure. But this much I am certain of. The baby put into my hands that night was clean and well cared for. You were meant to be found and given a good home. Orphan Voyage is a research is a research and communication center for adoptees, adoptive parents, and birth parents. They then got involved with Sharon after they after Dana told them about her, her story. So investigator Alice Simon helped Sharon acquire the court records on her case. But reading through the records, they became skeptical of the Stewart's story. According to the records, the Stewarts in the Mansfield had left at dawn on December 24th, 1931, to drive to the mountains, and they only stopped once at Roosevelt, Arizona. But from there on, there were inconsistencies, and that bothered Alice. Alice contacted the show Unsolved Mysteries to see if they'd be interested in featuring the story, and they were on board. Um, Alice went on to hunt, uh, went on a hunt, and managed to locate the Stewarts and the Mansfields who remember the story clearly, but refused to go on Unsolved Mysteries, offended by the criticism the case had recently begun to receive. I've got a picture here of the letter that the Stuarts sent back to Alice when she asked if they'd be interested. It says here that you know as much about as much about the Hatbox Baby as we do. We found her. We know nothing about her. We question why she would care who her mother is when she took, when she took her to the desert and left her for nothing in the wild what is it wild what and wild her for the wild animals to eat yes. as for as far as we are concerned this matter is closed please <laughs> do not contact us again oh yeah. man the days when uh, people had to fucking like underline their shit Right. Triple, triple underlined all caps found nothing closed do not 
rude mm-hmm. as fuck. Yeah, so obviously, really pissed off. Um, so Unsolved Mysteries, the episode aired on December 20th, 1989, and uh, thousands of tips would pour in, and Alice ran each one into the ground. Here's a picture of Sharon from the episode. Uh, so dozens of the the tips involve people whose family lore included siblings who disappeared under mysterious circumstances. Others were sure that Sharon was the illicit child of the redheaded movie star Anne Sheridan or silent film cowboy actor Tom Mix, who died in Arizona in 1940. One person even insisted that Sharon was the sister of the Lindbergh baby. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know why that was so funny, but it was. So... The Stewarts, uh, but the tip. So the tip line wasn't the only thing, only phone that was ringing that night. The show didn't portray the Stewarts in the best light. It implied that they knew more than they had originally said. And as soon as it ended on the East Coast, Ed and Julia's phones started to ring with calls from their friends who wanted to express shock. Had they really found a baby all those years ago? Were they worried that the show implied that they knew more than they were saying? The Hatbox baby herself even said that she thought the whole thing was a setup. The cause left Julia Stewart in tears. An hour later, the episode would air in central time and prompting another wave of calls and another wave of tears. And the third wave came when the episode finally aired at the West Coast. To their dying days, Ed and Julia Stewart maintained that their car really did break down seven miles west of Superior on Christmas Eve of 1931, and they really did stumble upon abandoned baby in a hat box. From the beginning, they felt the authorities appointed an accusatory finger at them. Even if investigators never came out and said it, the implications were there. Surely there was more to the story. Surely they must be covering up for some friend or loved one's indiscretion. A month after finding the Sharon, the stewards had been ordered to testify in court, and they told their story. The car broke down, it was Christmas Eve, they found the baby, and headed straight for Mesa. But who even were the stewards? Both Ed and Julia had grown up in troubled homes, each losing a parent at an early age, and each growing up in households plagued by hardships, but they found each other. Julia was 17 when they got married. Coming into the 1930s was hard. Ed drove truck, and to help make ends meet, the couple would drive out into the desert looking for wild horses that they could catch so that Ed could break them and sell them. Driving out to the desert and catching wild horses. So that Ed could break them and sell them. It's like, break them and sell them, yep. Uh, so shortly after they got married, Julia got pregnant and they had their first child. Eight months later is when they would find Sharon. They lived in Phoenix, but were staying with Julia's mom and Mesa for the holidays. They had driven up to the Apache Trail to see Julia's friend, Mrs. Hauser, and they were on their way home when they found Sharon. Now, they were 40 miles from Mesa, but only seven miles from Superior, which was bigger than Mesa. One of the many unanswered questions about their story is, why they made the drive all the way to Mesa instead of just heading back to Superior. So I've got a picture here. My files are too damn powerful. Fucking Discord. Discord needs to get shit together. It's like the only like chat I service. That, that. Like, it's so obnoxious. The most obnoxious thing. Right. Um, so yeah, I went on Google Maps and kind of uh, plotted out the uh, path of the assumed path that they took of obviously roads have probably changed since then, but the general idea of the path that they would have taken. So yeah. Um, down where it says us 60 in the middle there down in the bottom middle, that's about where they would have found Sharon. So you can see superior much closer and Mesa much further away. 
So yeah, why would you not go back seven miles with this baby that you've suddenly found in the desert? Also, I find the response to being asked about this like over the top, like too much. Way too Way defensive. Way too much. Way too much. And just so you guys can understand a bit more about the circumstances in which Sharon was found, I kind of also took some close-ups of the um, surrounding land. Because even now, it's absolutely fucking barren. It's, it's, it's fuck nothing. It's there nothing is literally nothing. It's the desert. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, Dark, and, cold. Yeah. <laughs> and one even closer. So, like, yeah, this highway that they were on, super fucking long, um, and the baby was 150 feet off the road. If they hadn't stopped at the exact right spot, there's no way that anyone would have found them. Mm-hmm. Found Sharon. Like, definitely sketchy as fuck. Yeah. Your story is suspect. Also, the fact that she was clean mm-hmm. and, like, yeah. not Healthy. suffering from any kind of, like, exposure mm-hmm. is very suspect. Oh, yeah. In the very same testimony, Ed and Julia's stories varied. So the same day that they were at the courthouse, each giving their statements, there was differences. So according to Julia, they had left Roosevelt and hadn't stopped until the car broke down. But in Ed's version, he said that they stopped between Miami and Superior for 15 to 20 minutes. He said to look at the snow. But looking at historical weather data, the temperature hadn't dipped below freezing that week with highs of 60. It's possible they could have been looking at the mountains, but they would have had a much better view of the snowy mountains in Roosevelt. So, wife also, says they never stopped. Husband said he stopped for 20 minutes. Look at snow! <laughs> to look at snow in Arizona. And, like, he's like, oh, that's the whole point of the trip was to go see snow because they'd taken, um, I think it was her cousin, or taken her cousins out there, right? But it's like, if, yeah, if you're there to see snow, you would have done it in Roosevelt. Why would you stop in the middle of the fucking highway in the middle of the desert to try and see snow? <laughs> so there's absolutely no record that the police verified Julia's visit to her friend, Mrs. Hauser. But Dana did his own investigation. Census records, voter registration rolls, and city directories show no Mrs. Hauser or any variation of that spelling in Roosevelt or the surrounding area. The only Hauser listed is 30 miles away in Miami. A year later, Julia would be interviewed for an anniversary story about the Hatbox baby. In this story, there would be many more inconsistencies with the original statement. One being that... In court, they'd said that it was the fuel line that broke on the car. But in the newspaper article, they said it was a flat tire. Very different things. Like, even if you don't have a mechanical understanding of a vehicle, you know what a flat tire is. So here's a quote from Julia from the newspaper. Um, We had an eight-month-old baby of our own back in Mesa with my mother, and Ed and I were anxious to get back. But I made him come anyway. When we went closer, we saw it was a ragged hat box. It was close, and a piece of cloth hung up. Ed opened it, and something inside moved. Then I did get scared. I clutched Ed's shoulder, and we heard a little noise. We carefully pulled back the cloth, and as Ed struck a match, we saw that it was a teeny baby. I've never felt so queer in all my life. <laughs> Sorry. I, love, I know I love it means the, something different. But yeah, I, I love the archaic version of queer. <laughs> Not the same these days. So yeah, what is the truth of Stuart's story? Did things really happen how they said, but details got mixed up or has something else entirely happened? And what was their involvement and reasons for keeping it secret? 
In 2003, Dana decided to contact the Stewarts and was able to interview their only surviving daughter, Wilma Irvin. Dana would speak to her many times over the years, and her story never wavered. Wilma had never even heard of the case or her parents' involvement until she read about it as a teenager in her grandmother's journal. When she asked her mother about it, Julia said it brought back terrible memories and that, she, and that this, what should have been a joyous miracle was clouded by shadows of suspicion. Now, this would have been before Unsolved Mysteries aired or even Sharon knowing about the truth. So who was treating the situation as suspicious? From the court records, not even the judge asked them about their inconsistent statements. Or did they just not want to talk about it and why? Hmm. Mystery. (laughs) (laughs) So, if the stewards knew something else, they likely took it to the grave, and we may never know. Or maybe they were just as they claimed, good citizens trying to do the right thing. Alice would end up moving to St. Augustine, Florida, but she and Dana never stopped the search on behalf of Sharon. I have a picture of Sharon here. It's a cute picture of her holding one of the newspaper articles. <laughs> but where did the Hatfix baby go? <laughs> Sharon's mother, Faith, had told her that she'd given all of Sharon's adoption papers to a family friend named Dorothy, who they had since lost contact with, making them impossible to retrieve. But in 2011, the documents turned up. It was nearing Christmas and Sharon's 80th birthday. So Dana went to do a follow-up piece with her and she agreed. And they got together in her home in Arizona and she pulled out all the boxes of all things Hatbox Baby. They were going over the newspaper clippings, the photos, the folders, and the books when they came across an envelope. Dana had never seen it before and Sharon wasn't familiar either. Inside they found a single page with a series of notations written with almost no punctuation in a woman's hand that Sharon identified as her adoptive mother's. So here is the thing. Um, the important details are as follows. Mother Edna Sherman Rowe, born 1914, died 1949, plane crash. And then it said, 1935, your mother saw you. She was 21 then. What the fuck? So had the truth been under their noses the entire time? Quote, this, that's my mother's handwriting. How could I have missed it? Sharon said. So Dana checked with Alice, who did seem to recall it. In her detailed notes, Alice found that she had tracked down relatives of Edna Sherman Rowe, but none of them knew anything about her having a baby. Her files even included a picture, but Alice didn't believe that there was any family resemblance. Dana thought it was worth looking into again and began his own research. One of the first things that he found was that Edna and her husband had died in 1951, not 1949. Turns out that Dorothy, the woman that Faith had given Sharon's adoption paper to, was a niece to Edna, which would have made her Sharon's cousin. Sharon said that growing up, Faith had always told her that she looked so much like Dorothy because they both had red hair. Dana tried to track down Dorothy with no success, but did find a niece to Edna and proposed that they do a DNA test to confirm if if she and Sharon were related. She initially was game, and Dana organized a test with a lab. DNA self-testing wasn't really a thing at the time, so the test came with a hefty cost, but it was worth it if it was going to give them some answers. But the niece later changed her mind and wanted nothing to do with the story. Which is like, it takes you five seconds for a cheek swab and could give somebody, you know, some closure and some answers in their life. Right, right. 
Um, so this crushed Sharon, obviously, but Dana promised to continue searching for Dorothy. Eventually, he did get contact from Dorothy, and they talked on the phone for well over an hour. She'd grown up poor in Oklahoma and spent a summer with Edna in Odessa. She painted Edna's life as lavish and important. Dorothy knew all about the story of the Hatbox Baby, but no, she wasn't related to Sharon, and Sharon wasn't related to Edna Sherman Rowe. Dorothy and Faith had become friends in the 19, 1970s when Dorothy was working as a real estate agent, and she helped Faith with a home sale. Dorothy said Faith must have borrowed the Edna Sherman Rowe story because she thought it sounded romantic and would make Sharon feel better about being abandoned as baby. Had Faith really stolen the story to make up a background for Sharon if she ever asked? Why? And just left this in an, an envelope among the Hatbox Baby stuff, so what, in case she found it one day? I guess. It's, 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 it just hurts it's your head. A- yeah, it's just such a cruel game to play with somebody. I don't know. Yeah. So, here's a picture of Faith. So, Dana uncovered some interesting things when looking into Faith and the origins of Sharon. Among the things he found were the court records of Faith's adoption application. Nothing incriminating, but definitely interesting. As we know, when Sharon was first found, they called her Marion after the Virgin Mary. When Faith adopted her, she had her name changed to Mary Elizabeth. Sharon doesn't recall when her name was changed to Sharon, but she believes it had something to do with the, with the Rose of Sharon, a flowering vine that is mentioned in the Bible, and the fact that Faith's father was a minister. Seems strange to change your child's name. Why had she done it? Was it to prevent Sharon from being found again after the adoption? Like, I don't know, man. Like, oh, I'm going to name you something else now. <laughs> yeah, uh, right? Yeah. So Dana dug into Faith's history and things got more interesting. When Faith applied for Sharon's adoption, she painted a pretty picture of herself as a newlywed couple that loved each other very dearly, but just hadn't had much luck on the side of trying to conceive a family. But things were much more complicated than that. And this wasn't even her first husband. In 1925, when Faith was 22 and working as a stenographer for the Veterans Bureau at Fort Whipple, she married a man named Sigmund Ingersoll, a man 10 years older than her and also worked at Fort Whipple. Three short years later, March 1928, she divorced him, citing non-support and the fact that he didn't want children. In Faith's divorce complaint, she says, for more than one year of last, he's neglected to fail and failed to provide the common necessities of life. He having the ability to provide the same, but has failed by reason of his idleness, profligacy, and dissipation. Even though he was a strong, able-bodied man, able to provide a living for himself and now earning more than $150 a month, I worked all the time we were married and gave him practically every penny I ever made. So Ingersoll never bothered to answer the complaint or show up to court. Faith said that it was probably because he was afraid of being hit with the court costs. By the time that her divorce was granted, Faith had already moved to Phoenix. The, the 1928 Phoenix City Directory shows a woman named Ingersoll working as a typist of the Veterans Bureau, but her name is listed as Fanny, not Faith. Which I guess Fanny could be a nickname for Faith. Isn't Fanny a nickname for France? Generally, yeah. So, on October 25th, 1928, Faith would marry Henry Steig in Los Angeles. She could not legally marry again in Arizona because not enough time had elapsed since her divorce. So Steve was an up-and-coming grocery, right? 
<laughs> Let's go to another state okay. to get married. There's not been enough you time. Have a divorce, so like, whatever, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Stieg was an up-and-coming grocery executive, a classic rags to riches story, and by all appearances, they were happily married. They owned their own house, and Stieg made good money, even with the stock, even after the stock stock market crash, when so few had. So they made for a compelling application for Sharon's adoption. The day of the adoption hear- hearing, due to severe weather, only Faith and one other couple made it to the courthouse. Quote, this is a quote from Faith, The judge called them first, and the woman didn't say anything, but the man said, We have one adopted daughter, and I'll say right here, she's been raised in the fear of the Lord, and I don't, pray- I don't believe in sparing the rod and spoiling the child. So Faith wrote in her 1986 motion, recounting the testimony of the couple. She's like, I prayed, dear God, don't let that man have my baby. <laughs> Imagine going to an adoption hearing and being like, yeah, I believe in hitting my children. <laughs> I mean, back in the day, though. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, obviously Faith won the adoption, and it sounded like a happily ever after story. This young couple was unable to conceive and finally had their own child, a delayed Christmas miracle. But all was not as it seemed. Seven months after Sharon was adopted, Steak filed for, sub- for divorce, by which time Faith had already moved to Prescott, Arizona. In his petition, Henry accused Faith of cruel treatment, saying for more than a year, she constantly and without reason found fault with, with and quarreled with him, both in private and before his friends and acquaintances. She also mocked his manner of speech and lack of education, causing him constant discomfort, discomfort annoyance, mental pain, and anguish. Lastly, Henry said that Faith consistently disturbed his peace of mind and the enjoyment of his home by constantly urging and insisting that Henry quit his job and that they move to California where she preferred to live. So, <laughs> so yeah, they, they were not having a good relationship at all, even before they got married. Also, and how, how old were they when they got married? Like, how long were they married for? Um, they weren't married before for... they got her. Um, so they were married at the end of 1928, and they got her at the start of 1932. So they, they were together like four years-ish. Okay, I was just trying to think, because like, they're like, we haven't had kids yet. I'm like, how long are you even married before you start worrying? <laughs> well, like, they... <laughs> that early, it's, you're not pregnant it's by like months, month Margaret. Yeah. It's been three it's been weeks. Why aren't you? I know my dick's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sorry. she would have also, um, Faith would have also been, let me see, she was 22 in 1925. So in 1932, math. So she would have been 29. So that, that would have been old at the time to have children. Yeah. Well, it, well I was just wondering because I kept calling them a young couple. And I was like, okay. So I'm thinking they're like early 20s. And then I was like, yeah. how long have they been married? I'm like, I guess I could have gotten married at like 16 gross but okay <laughs> so yeah but yeah divorce, no. yeah. It, yeah it was so yeah they weren't that young <laughs> no so the divorce was granted the settlement calling for faith to have sole custody and control of sharon now identified as mary elizabeth stig and in return she agreed to forego any alimony or child support so i'll never fucking bother you again if you let me take the kid and run what the fuck which I mean, it's not a terrible deal, but still, like, if you've had any attachment to your child. <laughs> but also for like the time, like remember, women have like you can't get a bank account, or like it's hard for you to have a job. 
and let alone like remarry when you already have children and like if you don't have a husband they can't like you can't get a bank account credit cards aren't really a thing yet but like back in the day like you couldn't do that so like what is she banking on then well she had consistent work so pretty much since okay her early 20s um she had work especially at fort whipple i think her if i remember correctly her father had originally worked there or something along those lines so yeah she'd been working in mesa she'd been working previously in prescott and well at this point she then heads back to prescott and takes her job again at fort whipple so she's a she's a stenographer so she pretty much just types what people says uh which is a very womanly job at the time yeah yeah but yeah so but yeah, not even 20 months later, after the divorce with Stieg, she married for the third time. This time to a tuberculosis patient named Charles Francis Cook, a World War I vet. Cook was a widower. His, li- his wife had died of tuberculosis several years earlier, leaving behind a young son, Jack. Almost a year to the day after he and Faith married, Charles Cook died, leaving Faith with a daughter, his son, and his pension. Prescott City directories from the late 1930s show Faith show Faith Cook, Jack, and Sharon living in a home, uh, home owned by Vera Mar- Morrow and her brother Arthur. On March 7, 1939, a marriage license was issued in Arthur's name in Yuma. He married a woman named Esther Cook, whose age and birthplace matched Faith's. So again, different name. But... by uh, This is the person that she ended up marrying, and the de- rest of the details match Faith. So why would you change your name to Esther? That's nothing at all like Faith. Yeah. Mm. But another biblical name. Mm-hmm. Well, her father her father was a minister, so it makes sense. Um, a year later, Faith Cook is listed in the 1940 census as a widow living in Los Angeles with her children, Jack Cook and Sharon Steig, along with Vera and Arthur. For all of so for all intents and purposes, Arthur was Sharon's father. He's the one that gave her away at her wedding, and they were all very close. So, like, he was there pretty much. Like, he was the primary partner for for Faith during Sharon's childhood. And yet, Sharon was a widower. <laughs> or sorry, Faith was a widower on the census paper. <laughs> even though yeah. she lived with her husband. And I, I wonder, like, it makes me ask questions, and I just kind of just thought of this now, that maybe the reason for that was she was worried about losing the pension from her previous probably. husband? Pro- possibly. So, probably. Yeah. So Faith's inconsistent documentation raises many questions. Why has she used so many different names? Why has she changed Sharon's name? Why did she marry a man who had tuberculosis like that? Yeah. Because where Sharon, do you meet someone with tuberculosis? Well, she worked at Fort Whipple, which had a medical wing. Yeah, but I mean, like you, you would, ha- you would have to, like, but what she was doing, like typing work and like reception work, she wouldn't be inter- interfacing with patients. We'll get there. <laughs> Sorry, you're onto something. So, so Sharon she just screams Black Widow to me. It's all. <laughs> it definitely sounds suspicious having that many husbands in that short period of time. Yeah. Um. So Sharon never indicated anything but a wonderful relationship with her mother. So, what do we make of this? Between 2011 and 2017, Dana encountered many other promising avenues that all led to dead ends. In 2017, Dana was attending a storytelling conference where he shared the story of his and Sharon's continued search for the truth. Bonnie Belza would happen to be in the audience, a DNA genealogist 
Touched by Deanna's story, Bonnie offered her services. Picture of Bonnie and her fucking like conspiracy wall that she made to track everything about this. Oh my god. Like my mother. Holy shit. Wow. So with a combination of Bonnie's knowledge and an ancestry service, they were quickly able to find that there was quite a number of third and fourth cousins in Arizona. And this proved to be less straightforward than they had hoped, with many of the families seeming to intertwine, making it very difficult to determine the primary source. With Sharon aging and her failing health, Dana and Bonnie knew time was limited and pushed even harder to find answers. Bonnie could identify German heritage and Sharon's genetics and use that to narrow down the pool of prospective relatives to Frida and Walter Roth. The Roths were married on August 1st, 1931, about five months before Sharon was born. Digging deeper into the family history, there was a record of a second child born two years later in 1933. Bonnie, being fairly confident that she'd found the right couple, turned the information over to Dana, who began to make phone calls. As expected, the Roths had passed by now, but so had their son just two weeks before this discovery. Two weeks. Frustrating. So frustrating. So Dana found that a lot of family didn't want anything to do with the Hatbox baby. Their aversion seemed heavily rooted in this archaic notion that something like this could ruin the family heritage. Which is bullshit. (laughs) Right? So, like, this is 2017. You got no more excuses anymore. (laughs) But, you know, I guess small town Arizona, or sorry, small town Iowa, like, I don't know. Um, so Dana respected their wishes. But Dana's questioning did turn up something. Dana had gone to Iowa, the home state of the Roths, and was knocking on doors looking for information. Was lucky enough to knock on the door of someone that had known the Roths personally. Not only that, they were directly related to the Roths, and they were willing to give a DNA sample. The information was enough to cause all the pieces to fall into place, proving beyond a doubt that the Roths were Sharon's parents. Dana finally felt confident bringing his shit findings to Sharon. When he told her that he found her parents, her reaction was quiet and somber. When she asked why, when he asked why she wasn't so excited, she said that she didn't really know for her, no, but maybe it had something to do that these were the people that abandoned her all those years ago. But there was a light in the darkness, and her name was Emily. Dana's and Bonnie's efforts had uncovered Emily Dodds, Sharon's great-grandniece. So Sharon had family. And it was living. And not just that, it turned out that Emily had been adopted as well and was oh seeking God. out her family too. So the lost women oh found each shit. other. As Dana put it, a story like this may seem like just a feature story about an old mystery case, but the impact it made on the lives of two people, particularly Sharon and Emily, it shows the power of what we do and the power of storytelling. Picture of Emily. Hmm. <laughs> they have the same nose <laughs> so as for Emily she did find her birth parents and it didn't go as she'd hoped she tried multiple times to contact her family to no avail and her letters all returned to sender unopened family accepts that even if it isn't easy at the end of the day they give her a chance for a second life by giving her up and the family she does have cares about her deeply Emily Emily and Sharon connected, chatting on the phone, and Emily sending her a card with photos of her children. On November 2018, Dana told Sharon that he'd be going to Iowa at the end of the month to find out more about Walter and Frida. She was more interested in whether or not he was going to see Emily, which he said he was. Dana's journey with Sharon had been full of coincidences. 
But the most random and bizarre one that happened was right before he left to Iowa. He had attended an early morning fitness class and ran into a fellow class member at a nearby Starbucks. They got to talking about their jobs. Dana mentioned a couple of his stories, including the Hatbox Baby. As they parted, he gave Dana his card. He wanted Dana to email him one of the stories. Later that day, Dana was going over, over a story from a Davenport newspaper about Walter and Frida's wedding, looking to see if there's anything else that he could glean from the article. Here's a picture from that article. So that would have been Frida. That would have been her mother. The article mentioned Frida's maid of honor, a Mrs. Floyd Benshoof, who was Walter's sister. The name was so damn familiar that he grabbed the card from his gym friend and it said Stephen Benshoof on it. What the fuck? Benshoof is an unusual name, so what are the odds? Well, he called up Bonnie and they had looked at Floyd Benshoof and sure enough, he had a descendant named Stephen. So Dana called Stephen. <laughs> You're not going to believe this. But remember the story about the Hadlocks baby I told you? You're related to her. So... As expected. Right? <laughs> so Stephen obviously didn't believe it right away. He's like, but Dana explained how the pieces fit together, and Steve offered to put him together to put him in touch with his brother, who was a family genealogist. His brother then put him in touch with a, con with a cousin that compiled an extensive genealogy on the Roth family and spent time in Iowa with the people that knew the family. He referred Dana to Paul Barnes, a longtime mayor of Bluegrass, Iowa, which is an amazing name for a town. <laughs> Bluegrass, <laughs> Iowa. So Paul grew up with James, which is Walter and Frida's son, and knew the parents well. So Dana prepared for, to leave for his trip and went to see Sharon, who was still in the ICU from her recent turn of events. She was sleeping, so he didn't want to wake her, and he left her a note. In Bluegrass, Dana met with Paul Barnes and a handful of other locals that had known the Roths. One woman, Marion Meyer, even had photos of the family and let Dana take pictures so that he could show Sharon later. And quote from Marion is, it's very, very interesting. I'm sure Frida would not want us to find out about this. <laughs> <laughs> Dana had made arrangements with a special collections department of the Davenport Public Library before leaving Phoenix, who were really excited to help. He severely underestimated how excited, though. When he arrived, they took him to a room in the basement where they had constructed a board with pictures and files on all the principal characters in the story. And they reviewed the files together. So a lot of the stuff you kind of already pieced together for the most part, but there was one thing in particular that they came across, which was, which really helped prove the case. They came across James Roth's birth certificate, Sharon's brother. And on it, it said, number of children of this mother at the time of this birth, including this child. So one being born alive and now living and one born alive, but now dead. So did Frida give the child away and tell her family the baby had died? Was Frida's child taken away from, from her by somebody who told her the baby had died? Or did Frida, knowing the doctor needed her medical history, just tell him the baby died to avoid questions? Dana met up with Emily and her family and had a wonderful visit. Emily said that while her search for her family hadn't panned out the way she'd hoped, she was delighted to have found Sharon, and Sharon delighted in calling Emily the niece that she never knew she had. Dana had wanted Emily and Sharon to get to get Emily and Sharon together on Skype, but Sharon's with Sharon's health, she was self-conscious and didn't want to appear in her hospital gown and wanted to wait until she got better. So Dana had an idea for the next best thing and helped Emily film a video for Sharon. It was loving and sweet, and she wished Sharon a happy birthday and a Merry Christmas, and said that she'd hoped that she'd bounce back soon. 
Dana never got to show this to Sharon. Sharon died the day he got back to Phoenix. Oh. No. Even with Sharon gone, Dana still keeps the case files open, hoping one day to be able to find all the answers and tribute to Sharon. And he has found a lot more since then. During the 1930s, stories of doorstep babies were prevalent. There was even a traveling musical variety show, show called Shoot the Works, which featured a song by Irving and Billing called Doorstep Baby, and which happened to play in Davenport in the summer of 1931, two weeks after Frida and Walter were wed. Papers across the state carried a weekly serialized fiction story about a doorstep baby named Vivian Matthews. After a series of glamorous adventures, learns that she is the daughter of a wealthy banking tycoon. And in a 1930 Iowa paper, there was an ad for a movie called Hell's Heroes, which is described as a great story laid in the West where in three tough characters discover an abandoned baby in the Arizona desert and undertake to take care of it. The landscape in Iowa was particularly harsh for unwed parents. Unwed mothers who wanted to turn their babies over to the orphanage underwent an almost ritualistic public shaming before their children were accepted. And not even the fathers were exempt from this. Dana found countless newspaper articles shaming these unwed fathers as well. And a baby that was turned over to the orphanage wasn't guaranteed a better life. There's a front page story from the Davenport Democrat from 1929 that reported that there was over 500 orphans in Davenport waiting to be adopted. 500 children. That's so many. That's so lot. many. But, like, this is also, like, the height of the Depression, and there mm -hmm. is no work, and all the farms are dying in the Midwest, so. Yeah, and, well, you know, you know, Studio Bible about we don't believe in contraception or abortion. Well, and so. it, it didn't really exist yet, like, like, kind of condoms, right? But not, like, mm -hmm. super reliable ones like we have today, and, and no oral birth control. Mm-hmm, for sure. So basically, was it the climate of the times and her possibly her mother-in-law scorn that led Frida Roth, a woman herself was who was herself was abandoned as a baby, to then give up her own child? Or could Emma Roth, Walter's mother, have arranged to have Frida's baby taken from her against her will or without her knowledge? Could she have told Frida her baby had died? There was a black market baby theft rings during this time. One was run by a notorious Georgia Tan in Tennessee, and another by a woman named Gertrude Pitkin. Picknin in Montana. Both women performed illegal abortions, but also would take take live newborns from unwed mothers and sell them to willing parents. There was a lot of stuff that was like this that was happening. So if the baby was taken against Frida's will, though, you would think that there'd be like some sort of family lore about it, or that there'd be a police report or anything. But if there is, there's nothing that Dana or Bonnie has been able to find. The question still lingered, though: What did the Roths have to do with Arizona? Well, they found something eventually. So they did find George Washington Cotts, who was born in Bluegrass, Iowa, and ran off without telling his family to enlist as an artilleryman in the Spanish-American War in 1899. No one knew what became of him until months later, when an uncle received a letter from the Philippines, which generated the headline, Long Lost is Located in the Moline Daily Dispatch in January 1900. In 1931, he was a tuberculosis patient at the Veterans Bureau Hospital at Fort Whipple. <laughs> near Prescott, the very same Fort Whipple that Faith had worked at for so much of her life. George was first cousin to Emma Roth, Walter Roth's mother. He was cared for by a niece named Lily Sprott, 
who had lost her own husband to tuberculosis and had lived in Prescott since 1924. Dana was able to track down Lily's daughter, Fritzie Collins in Phoenix. Fritzie doesn't recall if she ever met Uncle George. A TB wing really isn't a place for a small child to hang out, but she remembers the generosity to her mother and the dolls from the Philippines that he gave her to play with. Fritzie had never heard of a family connection to the Hatbox Baby, but to her, it made sense that her mother could have been involved. Lily was a public health nurse with maternity experience, and after uh, George died in 1933, she worked extensively with unwed mothers in and around Prescott, helping them place their babies for adoption. We know that Walter and Freda's wedding announcement said that they were going to have a honeymoon in Sioux City and then travel west. Prescott was west. Fraith was a clerk typist at the fort. While it had 900 patients, it was still quite a small installment. It's entirely possible that she had known Lily Sprott, who would have been about the same age. And it's certainly possible that she knew of George Cotts. Some two years after she adopted Sharon, she did meet her third husband in a TV wing at the fort, had she met him through Lily. If someone in her circle knew that Faith desperately wanted a child in 1931, and if that person knew of someone who was desperate to not have a child, some sort of arrangement could easily be made. Even though it was the heart of the Great Depression, Faith and her second husband, Henry Stegg, had the means to make something happen. Henry worked in the grocery business, and Ed Stewart, whose wife stumbled upon the hatbox baby in the desert, drove an ice truck. It's not hard to imagine how these lives could have intersected. Oh my goodness gracious. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So in her plea to have Sharon's adoption records unsealed 55 years later, Faith said that she and her husband were personal friends of government George W.P. Hunt and that she and Henry had asked him to intervene with Judge E.L. Green on behalf of them at the adoption hearing. A researcher at Arizona State Archives were unable to course, were unable to find any correspondence related to the Hatbox Baby and Hunt's papers, but such an arrangement could have been handled on the phone. If your friend's the senator, you, and you're like, hey, I want to get this baby, so he just calls the judge and makes sure that you, the adoption goes through. Yeah. That would do it. Wow. Wow. So this could also explain why the authorities never questioned the stewards about the inconsistencies in their testimony. Because right. at that point, they don't care because <laughs> the case has been closed. It's been, yeah, it's been done, did, handled. Yeah. Wow. So it doesn't answer every question. There's very little to no actual evidence to support this version of events. But as of now, it is the most likely theory. But who knows what may come out in another 10 years. If anything else does, you know that Dana, Bonnie, and Alice will find it. So yeah, like I kind of like you know kind of heard about the baby or about them kind of finding her parents and the the, the DNA debacle with all of that, but I never heard about this part at all. Yeah. So yeah, um, so that to me sounds like a plausible um, series of events that would make sense. There's just so many connections that it'd be just really weird for it to not be coincidence or for it to be mm-hmm. coincidence. Right. Right. Dang. So. Sharon's only child, Jan, was able to say goodbye to her mother several days before Sharon died. She kissed her mother on the forehead and told her that she loved her. Jan's life had not been easy the last few years. She recently had surgery and is unable to work. She does not have a car and is living with a friend until she gets back on her feet. And she could not afford a funeral for her mother, and neither could other members of the family. Nearly three weeks after she died, Sharon's body lay at the East Valley Mortuary. If she was not claimed for funeral rides, the, the county would cremate her and spread her ashes uns- unceremoniously. Dana knew that this wasn't the legacy that Sharon deserved. 
This is a quote from Dana. I could not let that happen. I called Bonnie Belza, the DNA genealogist who helped solve Sharon's case. And I called Alice Simon, the private investigator who took on Sharon's case in the early days. We agreed that the three of us would handle the financial arrangements for a simple cremation and urn. I called a friend who was a minister and who told me how deeply touched he was by the Hatbox baby's story. We made arrangements to hold a simple service a few days after Christmas, a few miles out of the town of Superior. The Hatbox baby's story would end exactly where it began. Sharon's survivors include her daughter, Jan Elliott, a grandson, Stephen Olson, granddaughter, Stacy Clark, and her husband, Dustin, two great-grandchildren, Eric and Annalise, and longtime friend, Alice Simon, and of course, Emily. And here is a picture, one of the last pictures of her. Aww. No, that's a good oh, one. Right? That's the Headbox baby story. What the what? Wild. <laughs> what the what the what? <laughs> God. Yeah. Kidding. This is it's some kind of shit. Right. Ah. That poor lady. Jeez. And the miracle that they found this much stuff out so long later like you know the sharon didn't even find out she was adopted till like 55 years later i can't yeah. that is so and by the 2000s most of the people that would have personally known sharon's parents are dead like it's mm-hmm. just time that's how that works it's, it's solely what you can find by records tracing absolutely yeah that's what my um my mom is doing right now she's getting her genealogy degree and like this kind of stuff, like tracing stuff like that, is her jam. That's yeah. all she wants to do all day. It's super impressive and amazing. Like, it's crazy how much you can put together by like census records and voting records and marriage mm-hmm. licenses. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. Um, and of course, Emily uh, lives with her husband uh, in Iowa. And their two children. So she's still doing her thing. Yeah. Man. Mm-hmm. So yeah. We, we went every we went everywhere with these <laughs> holiday stories. We went absolutely <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> Little Holy bit of everything. Holy. Little bit of everything. And yeah. So yeah, I guess this uh that's the end of our Christmas episode. Have a yeah. have a good holiday, everybody. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Whatever you celebrate. Yeah. Or don't. Or don't celebrate. Enjoy some Chinese food if that's what you're up to. I was gonna say you could you could legitimately just be like, enjoy whatever food you're gonna eat on whatever day you would like. <laughs> I like that for all <laughs> that is good. Like it covers like all religions and all holidays because yeah, almost yeah. every holiday is about food at some point. It focuses on some oh, food yeah. somewhere. Enjoy, enjoy the food the, that you eat over the next couple of weeks. Enjoy the food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully the you know maybe you can get outside and and see something nice. Sure. Um, and this will probably be our last episode for this year with the holidays coming up. So I guess we'll see y'all in the new year. Oh, hell. That's it for this week. 
this will be our last episode until the new year with all the holidays coming up. So we will see you again on January 7th. Then we'll get into some lost media, a mysterious extra planet in our solar system, and the Montauk Project. So get excited. As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at thehumanexception. Have a story you want us to cover? Want to tell us that we're wrong or just want to say hi? You can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And to get in on the fun, you can come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. And if you feel like supporting us or buying something extra for the holidays, we now have a merch store. Link can also be found on our website. Keep on being exceptional, humans, and have a wonderful weekend and wonderful holidays. We'll see you in the new year. <laughs>